and welcome to this week's episode of Craft Malarkey. Today we are joined by Robert Lyman to talk about his brand new book, A War of Empires. We've also actually got a very special guest host as well, Lucy Betteridge Dyson, who knows Robert very well. And this is definitely going to be a treat of an episode. Enjoy! Hey, Lucy as well. Hello. (laughs) We want to surprise you. I have been surprised by the change of hair colour, though. (laughs) (laughs) I was a great (laughs) fan of the red. The red, yeah. Well, you know, it does suit you, you know. It does. I like it. Very much, guys. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I think you'd be rather surprised if I did it to mine. I think you don't know. I don't know. You should go for it. I think I think everyone in this house would be rather surprised if I did that. <laughs> it would it's be slight, slightly out of character, I think. <laughs> maybe the maybe the colour of my shirt. Oh, that's true. So. Yeah. Go, go for whatever. Life's too short, isn't it? Life's too short. <laughs> <laughs> it's an absolute pleasure to meet you, Rob, and thank you so yes, much for coming so. on. But it's, a, it's my pleasure to meet you two. I've uh, followed I follow you with interest. Oh, a long so distance tough. behind oh, you. Stop it. It's very amusing. <laughs> we try our best. <laughs> Phoebe, did we meet at Warfest? Were you at Warfest? Yes, I was. I, can't, I, I was trying to wrap my brains about this earlier. I was going to say, oh, hi, nice to meet you. Then I thought, I don't know if we've met already or not, but I was at Warfest. We did very briefly, but there were lots course, of yeah. people there. <laughs> lots of people in lots of beers as well, so I'll blame it on that. <laughs> No, I absolutely loved that weekend. It was um, completely uninhibited. Really good. Yeah, it was brilliant. I'm just about to book, well, my dad wants to come this year, so I'm just about to book our tickets for it. (laughs) I was just going to say, there are too many blokes. We need need some more girls, so I hope you're coming. I tried to rope my mum in, but she was having none of it, so I'm yet to tell her on the the appeal of tanks and guns yet, so... (laughs) Well, my darling wife of 33 years, she refuses to go to anything like that. She's never read any of my books. She... I love her. I love her. <laughs> it's, it's great. It's great. I actually really it's like great. that. That's Mark, brilliant. Mark's not Keeps the least anything I do. So We're yeah. not peas in the pod. No, no, that's right. That's why we've got each other instead. <laughs> yeah. You're right. You know, we don't need the partners, actually. It's fine. Yeah. No. Right, Rob, no, if you're right, I know we're going to talk about your book, but because um, I know that you recently did one of the Bastille Guide things together and you had a fantastic dy- like dynamic, we wanted to kind of, we love to have a bit of a panel discussion. So, whatever you two just go with the flow because they're like our experts on this. So, yeah. I think it's really interesting topics. Well, that's fabulous. I mean, Lucy's, um, the advantage that Lucy's got is, well, she's a passionate historian, but she's also got a family link. I have to say, in the years that I've been doing this, a family link is incredibly important because it makes yeah. it real to people. Absolutely. And you can you can see that whenever I post something on Burma, um, Lucy comes straight back in there, you know, she's, and, and she and I will do it, we'll do a tour to Arakan when the country opens up. I, I'm due to go oh, out wow. there again in November, but I'm still not sure whether, oh, well, I haven't been to uh, Eric can at all. I did this program with um comedian, not even a comedian. Um, yeah, what was his name? Do you know, I can't believe I'm, I've got this mental blank. Anyway, we went out in 2013 to do a program about his father, who um who was in the he was a medical officer with the with the West Africans, and it was absolutely amazing. But the one place they refused to let us go was Eric can Even then, 2013, you know. Really? Yeah. Why? Um, I think the last, well, it's a very, very sensitive place um, politically uh, because it's it's sort of 99% Muslim. Burma, of course, is, Burma is a really fascinating place because it's, um, 
it's a very, very racist place. It's like lots of countries, you know, we, we just you get this idea that racism is a, is a Western thing. It just isn't. And the problem with um, Burma is, um, well, there are lots of problems with Burma, but one of, one of the, the problems with Burma is some um, geographical and racial division. So the Baymar population, basically the Burmese Buddhist population, which occupy the, the center of the country, um, have never had any time for the people of, of the, the hill tribes who live around them and vice versa. And one of the really interesting things about the opposition to the current um, coup military leadership, which has been in place for nearly two years, is um, that many of the Baymar population are fighting against them. And that's really, I think it's a good sign, actually. It's a good sign that militarism has had its day in Burma. It'll still run for a long time, but it's, it's, I think it's in end stages. But um, the problem is that the Baymar population, in order to retain control, clamped down on all the people of the hill tribes. So the, the Karens and the Kachins, the Shans, not so much the Shans, the Shans, the Baymars mm -hmm. get on really well, the Kachins and the Nagas and the, the Chins and the people of Arakan, the Rohingya, who of course are all Muslim. And, and that's a fundamental problem for the power-hungry Burmars. It's just oh, a fact of life. Yeah. I mean, I, I've often characterized Burma as being still in the civil war that was initiated by the Japanese. Japanese began the civil war in Burma that still goes to this day. I think most people who observe Burma would agree with me. I mean, it's a terrible tragedy. It's a fabulous country. I absolutely love it. I love going out there. I've been 17 times. Oh, wow. God. I, I was meant to go and I had to cancel it. And I just like, I've been trying to get to a point got to, to do it. it but it's just not not been on the cards just because of everything you know yeah. the world got, being a historian in a pandemic isn't it it's yeah. really messed oh, up when yeah. you're a battlefield right? it's an absolute nightmare that's true well the pandemic's been good for some things it's meant that i've been able to lock down and, and get stuff done but it's um it's really hard for getting out it really is hard. i mean i'm going to um look at the old Southeast Asian Command Headquarters in Sri Lanka in a few months time. And oh, I'm, so, wow. I'm, I'm so looking forward to it because it's really the first time I've got out and That's done so something cool. in a couple of years. Yeah. End of March, I'm going out for 10 days to, to look around Candy. I'll be doing a bit more as well. But, that's know, really that, exciting. That, wow, that's incredible. How that's lucky. the key thing. That's I was um I was so glad that my granddad got to go back to Burma as well, like that those veterans going back out there. Incredible well, opportunity. I was going to say that I think Harry's return was the luck because they were Harry's return, they were sort of sponsored or paid for by UKG. And yeah. um the Burmese government let them in. Because mm -hmm. I went on a I went on a Harry's return in 2005 as well. We had no problems at all, none whatsoever. Yeah. Uh, What's a um what Harry's return or Harry's he, return? Hero's return. Oh, Hero's. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. So what is that for those who don't know? It, it was like a funded sort of yeah. turn, like battlefield kind of pilgrimage for veterans. Okay. Um, oh wow. Was, yeah. So it was really. I mean, my granddad actually was the one who kind of picked up the reins to organise it for for his particular tour. But they did a bunch of them, and my mum went got to go with him as well, and. It was really for those veterans who fought far away. You know, it's it's obviously not something that the majority of people ever got the chance to do. You know, yeah, so it was really incredible. Um, it, it was incredible, and the the government gave quite it was a very generous allowance. I think it was about eight hundred pounds a person, and then you could take someone else with you. So most people took uh, a granddaughter, or um, and the, the trip that I went on to Burma was amazing. The other really amazing thing about Hero's return, there was very good um, companies that 
um, organized tours around it. The other really good thing about Harry's return is he can go as many times as you like to different places. So if oh, you wow. served in if you served in North Africa, Italy, France, and Burma, you could go to all of them if you wanted. That's and a couple fabulous. of them did. Yeah, this is amazing. I know um it meant the world to my granddad to be able to get back there and the local people that you know he he met out there when they went back to 170 were so yeah. they were he was just completely blown away by how welcoming they were and how interesting oh, they wow. were. Well, I, I tweeted today. I mean, I just discovered a book that I'd forgotten in my in the shelves behind me. I was just doing a quick route around, and I discovered um, the book that I used in two thousand and five. Because with the the bunch of people who I went out with in two thousand and five, um, uh, they they or their fathers had all fought around Mactila Mandalay, and we and one of them was John Charles, who's sadly since passed away, but he. Um, he was a young lieutenant in C Squadron of, of Probin's Horse, and they crossed the Irrawaddy in their Sherman tanks, and they took three days to get to Mactila. Well, we did it in about a day. Uh, they were clearly uh, fighting the Japanese as they went. But we walked through the villages and drove through the villages on the route using the maps and came across villages that hadn't seen a white man since 1945. Wow. And, and it, it was, you know, oh central Burma is remarkable. And we, we laugh about Russia not having any roads. Russia doesn't have any roads because they spend 20% of their GDP on, on their defence force. Burma is the same. There's, outside of the main roads, there's nothing. It's just dirt tracks and bullocks, um, bullock carts and bullocks and carts. <laughs> mm. um, but that was amazing. I absolutely adored it. You know, John, we just spent the whole of that day. We were out there for two weeks um, refighting the Battle of Mactila, which was really one of the, uh, like Hill 170, one of mm. the unknown dr dramatic battles of the war. Um, and quite a turning point in 1945. No one ever expected to get to Rangoon, and all of a sudden, <laughs> the Japanese were mashed up at Mactila. Really, quite powerful stuff. But being wow, able to wander around through cool. these villages where no one had been before and been for a long time, you know, it was, as a young historian, it was really moving. I know. Really I'm, I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> you're dirt, Lucy. Well, right. I, I keep on. I keep on telling people who I was with out there. One guy who's still out there, you know. When can we when can we do that again? And they said it's just not possible. Yeah, they the government were a little bit uh, um, difficult about giving us permission to go to Mactila in the first place. But um, but because it was Harry's return, it was no problem. And they didn't give us a guide that we did we were, you know or a, you know a policeman to make sure we didn't disobey mm. the rules. We just did our own thing. When I went to Libya in two thousand seven, Gaddafi gave me a member of a secret service to make sure I. I oh my god. <laughs> I didn't expect that. And uh, it was great fun. <laughs> I mean, uh, I arranged that particular trip through um, the um, through the Libyan um, embassy, and they said, "Yes, we're going to provide an accredited guide." But <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I, I had to pay the, the I had to pay the High Commission for the accredited guide. I couldn't travel there without the accredited guide, and the guide <laughs> was a member of the Secret Service. We absolutely got on fabulously, and the really interesting thing is he's still alive. He lives in Benghazi, and he 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 talks to me regularly through LinkedIn. It's hilarious. Oh, oh, brilliant. <laughs> Right, Rob, I'm going to pause you there because I feel we're talking about, you know, these wonderful heroes and we'll talk about all this kind of context, but I feel like we should dive into your book yeah, sure. and, you know, the reason why we've got you and Lucy here tonight, because so people who don't know much about it can be like, wow, be as stunned as me and Phoebe are right now. Yeah. <laughs> so, Rob, one of our first questions, we always ask our guests this, can you summarise your book, 
the roar of empires in 30 seconds. No. No, that's perfectly fine. <laughs> I was going to say, what, you try? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I, I have actually written, believe it or not, I've scribbled down sitting in front of the fire all my little answers to your question. Um, oh, I love I, that. Well, just, just to prove that historians do prepare for, for podcasts. Okay, the, 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 um, the answer is very simple. It's the story of um, how the Japanese invasion of, of um, Southeast Asia in 1941 uh, worked out so well for the Japanese in 1941-42 and then ended up very badly for them in 1944 and 45 and vice versa for the empires they opposed. And it's a story of empires. Yes, it's the story of the Japanese empire at the height of its um, powers. 1941 was actually the last spasm of Japanese imperialism. We often think it was the start of the war, but of course they'd been fighting in Manchuria and China since 1931. And this invasion of Southeast Asia was, was actually their, their last gasp. Um, and it's, but it's even more than that. I mean, it's not 30 seconds, I know, but it's the story <laughs> of the transformation of the Indian army, or even I would say, I, I spent time sort of wondering whether I should use the word transmogrification. It's the transition of the Indian army from a 200,000 uh, strong uh, constabulary into a 2 million strong um, modern army that could defeat any pair um, opponent it came across. And I've argued, and I think I, I do believe this, that if you took the 4th and 33rd Corps from Burma in 1945 and stuck them in Northwest Europe, they would have been as good, if not better, than any oh, of the Allied formations who were serving in 21st Army Group at the time. And, oh, and that's a remarkable transformation. How on earth did that happen? I try and tell that story yeah. through the story of operations in Burma and India, of course, because we're talking about um, Manipur and Assam as well. So the Burma campaign, uh, it's, it's about Burma, but the fighting actually happened, a lot of the fighting happened in India. Yeah. When you say yeah. that transformation of, of um, the Indian Army like that, would you kind of draw, you know, comparison to the BEF in the First World War, this kind of... Yes, That's a good comparison, yeah. It is a very good comparison. It's interesting if you look at the journey of the British Army in the First World War, we go from BEF to BEF plus um, uh, uh, Kitchener's New Army, and then we get a an amalgam of the two in 1917, and then actually in 1918, which is work I'm studying, I'm doing at the moment. You you can't see my big pile of books here. Uh, <laughs> you've actually got you've got a new British Army by 1918. It's a, it's the same model, yes. And I think I would say that, you know, when you look at the Indian Army in 1940 between 41 and 45, the change is dramatic, and it's quite extraordinary how quickly it happened. Um, and it's the same with the, with the British Army in the First World War. So change doesn't have to take a very long time. Change can happen really, really quickly. And the the nexus, the the, the point in time where all this happened was 1943, and it was after the debacles in Arakan. All that that was very helpful learning experience. Although, as Slim said, it was an unnecessary yeah. learning experience. <laughs> uh, he knew yeah. what was required. But by the start of 1944. That, um, you know, nothing that the Indian Army and the British Army, the two armies fighting together side by side and often in an integrated way in Burma, nothing they did uh, turned bad, even though the challenges facing them were unbelievable. I mean, I would say, I mean, I spent 20 years in the army, I went through staff college, if I sat down, I was given those challenges, you know, how do you get two calls, uh, you know, one of which to armoured across the Chindwin down to Mandalay, uh, down to Rangoon, you know, and you're going to do it in five months to, to try to get it before the monsoon. Mm. 
<sighs> it's crazy, yeah. isn't it? The, the yeah. geography <laughs> and, and the, the elements there, it just, yeah. just that alone, you know, take the Japanese out of the picture, just doing that logistically is insane. What did they think of it, Lucy? Like, was it, was it something that was really on the forefront of their minds when they're out there? What the the environment? Yeah, like constantly being like you said, you're batting with the elements. All oh the yeah. Time. Yeah, it was it was like fate. It was another enemy in the picture a lot of the time. You know, disease, malaria, dengue fever. You know, the this for a lot of the especially the you know the chaps in the, in the commandos, which is kind of the area that I'm most interested in. So that's my granddad was in four four Royal Marine, and they were young lads. They're 17, 18, and just done mm, a bit of training right. in Scotland, essentially, you know, and, and suddenly they went yeah. to India first, had a bit of a climatization, uh, but, you know, realistically, certainly not faced any kind of challenges of that kind of nature. Um, and then you've got the Japanese on top of that, you know, who were adept at fighting in, in, in uh, much more in those conditions, not that they were like the supermen that they kind of made often were made out to be but you know the psychological stress of knowing you're going into yeah. an environment which you're not fully prepared for mm. horrendous yeah. <laughs> I, I mean it does you just said there about the ages every single time someone reminds me that you had 16 17 18 year olds fighting it blows my mind my nephew's about to turn 17 and he can barely remember to put fucking sun cream on when he goes outside <laughs> let alone imagine plonking him into a jungle you know and you think that at the determination that these young lads must have had to even just survive let alone as you said you have the terrain as an enemy let alone the actual enemy that's out I to think, kill you so I think the thing I always think about as well is that the world is so much smaller now that we have this idea we we can you know I could say if you think about the jungle in Burma you can have in your mind's mm -hmm. eye a picture of what it might be like and you know a lot yeah. more about it and I always think you know actually for you know for my granddad Ted you know it's just blood from Croydon you know living in Croydon yeah. or whatever and and the concept of it would have been so much more strange and yeah it's definitely uh, played a huge part I think in in a lot of the you know the experiences of, of individuals mm. that something that's yeah a lot yeah very formative experiences I'm sure so Rob and Lucy as well do you want to give our listeners that might not know I guess this period still gets called the kind of forgotten war the forgotten battlefield in some um, in some sense. So do you want to give us a bit of an overview for our listeners of the main figures in the period? So what's going on? What's the goal? Who's leading them? Okay, uh, well, I'll start. Um, in, in no particular order, the first thing to think about is um, a, a, uh, an aggressive Japan. So the, the, there is, um, a, it's the key to the whole story in the Far East, which is the rise and the fall of the Japanese empire. Japan was uh, aggressively trying to expand its footprint across Asia. Um, and the, the one thing that I think people have just got wrong because they haven't really thought hard about it is the reason for 1941. The reason for 1941, yes, was Japan desperately needed resources, but it wasn't to fuel its own domestic economy. It wasn't to support uh, housewives you know, across Japan. It was to support an aggressive, egregious military campaign in China. China, ha uh, Japanese had about a million men under arms. Uh, they needed to be, they weren't being successful. They weren't uh, uh, doing what they hoped to be able to do and, and subdue China completely. They had this uh, concept, this racial concept of, um, of superiority or exceptionalism, which is the term most people use nowadays, and they needed to be able to subdue the, the Chinese. It wasn't working. They needed resources to do it. Um, and really in a last gasp, and there's lots of politics behind this between the army and the navy, um, uh, a, a campaign against the imperial uh, possessions owned by the French the uh, Americans, British, and the Dutch was agreed and executed. It was ex executed really well, uh, very uh, 
expertly, but it succeeded primarily because the uh, European colonial empires in the Far East uh, and everyone else in the Far East were not expecting it. I mean, that's in a, it in a nutshell. I mean, we can yeah. criticize, and indeed I do criticize the fact that the primary duty of any government is to protect its citizens and the British Empire absolutely failed to do that um, in any sensible way in 1940, 41, 42, despite having the resources to do it. There's no doubt we had more men, we had uh, more equipment, we were well equipped, and we were just badly led and badly trained. Um, but that's the start of it. The, the other really big thing that um, people need to know about is the role of China. Uh, so I've touched on this in terms of the creation of the Japanese Empire. China had begun to, the Chinese Empire had begun to fall apart in the early part of the 20th century. And then suffered many years of civil war and, and unrest. Um, the two primary powers were the, the, the Cantonese army, the Kuomintang, um, led by um, Chiang Kai-shek, quite a remarkable man in many respects. Um, Chiang Kai-shek had realized early on that in order to survive, he needed to get the support of the United States, particularly as Japanese um, efforts ratcheted up in China, and he launched uh, with his family a really sophisticated publicity campaign in the United States. The United States um, fell for it, I don't blame them, and I think I would have done the same, and um, the whole concept of Lend-Lease began uh, with the United States offering um, military supplies to the Chinese on very favorable terms, which was routed to China uh, via Rangoon. So Burma was important to the Japanese. The only reason the Japanese were ever interested in Burma was because of the Burma Road. American supplies would arrive in Rangoon, they'd go by rail all the way up to Bamo on the border with Yunnan, and then they'd be carried on the, the remainder of the road by trucks into Chongqing. And um, so that's it's really, really important. Uh, and the whole of Allied strategy through the war uh, was, um, was anchored on the importance of China. Uh, then, of course, we've got India. India is, a, India is the, the next big, really incredible part of the story because, you know, in the 1920s, yeah. independence had been promised. India was on a trajectory towards independence. But, of course, the whole of the political economy in India in the 1920s and 30s was, in fact, I'm going to really summarise brutally now, a fight between um, Muslims and, uh, and Hindus about the future status of an independent India. And, of course, whilst you had all these arguments raging, it's not simply a story of, of imperial oppression on India. It's, it's actually quite a democratic conversation about who takes charge and what the nature of the post-imperial in, in, um, post structure looks like. And then you've got the same conversation happening in the UK, but actually during the, that time, and, and this is really, this has been exaggerated politically, but it's, it's, it's really important to understand that actually Britain lost the will to govern in the 1930s and 40s. And, and that was accelerated through the war. So you get a sense by 1944, look, soldiers, the soldiers' memoirs, and I put this in the, in, the, in the book deliberately, were really, really critical about this. They realized that, you know, the, whilst the British Empire was contracting and Britain had promised independence to India, the, there was a very strong desire that this happened very quickly. Now, so, so the real challenge I had when I started looking at the story of the Far East was, well, why was it that the Indian army uh, transformed itself so dramatically, so successfully, and was able to defeat the Japanese so dramatically in 1944 and 45 at a time when Britain was leaving? There were very few British troops actually in the Burma campaign in total. Uh, this is really an Indian war. 
And it's a really fascinating story because if you believe the Japanese propagandists, you'd say, well, the British Empire was done, therefore India should just go back home and pack up their bags. No, no, there's a really, really important point here, which is about Indians deciding that defending their new country, the country that they were building themselves was mm -hmm. worth defending and worth fighting against. I love that. And that reminds me a bit of, um, I'm going to go back to the, just mentioning the First World War again, but you know, the kind of, the, the, a lot of the kind of mythology that comes out of, you know, the idea of Canada and Australia and the birth of these nations as their own kind of independent yeah. militaries, it kind of yeah. reminds me of that. And actually yeah. that yeah. was, must've been such a, a huge driver, you know, to succeed that perhaps just was underestimated, you know. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, I was brought up in New Zealand and Australia and I went to boarding, <laughs> boarding school in Australia. And I, I remember being taught and, and learning about this, the fact that, the, you know, blood on Gallipoli's shores was the, um, were the birth pangs of Australia, of Australia as, as a nation. And there's a huge amount of truth in that. I, I, I sort of challenge my friends in India and, and people who work in this area with the question, why was it that with independence looming, Indians um, uh, didn't need any encouragement to join up? And it's because I think that, and I've interviewed lots of Indian veterans over the years, they had the sense of a, of a new India that was coming. They were fighting for what they were going to inherit. They weren't fighting for the past, uh, one of the real, real tragedies about the political uh, conversation about the Second World War in India is that it's been hijacked for political purposes, particularly extreme Hindu BJP um, uh, commentators will say, well, of course, the Indians fought for the Raj. They didn't. They fought for Britain. They did. They fought for imperialism, which is just not true. If it, if it was true, why was it? that India produced their largest volunteer army in the history of mankind. Mm. You know, 2.5 million Indians voluntarily joined the army. Now, if you take out that percentage of people who were hungry and didn't have a job and all the rest of it all felt, felt obliged to join the armed forces, which I think is very, very small. Uh, Professor Raghavan in India, uh, Srinath Raghavan has produced a brilliant book where he sort of demolishes those, those ideas. And he builds this, this concept of, India and Indians recognizing that this was an important thing to do to defend the future that they were going to inherit. And I think that's that is the sensible way of seeing um, the dramatic growth of the Indian Army, its remarkable success in 1944-45. Um, they weren't fighting for Britain, they weren't fighting for the Raj, they weren't fighting for imperialism, they were fighting for themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's uh, and uh, in a way that's really what I tried to um, rescue in the book. That's really what I'm trying to do, and I'm I'm really pleased that it's gone down well in in India. Uh, you know, you're always going to have those people who are, who, who adopt that uh, attitude. That of course it's it's um, you know I'm trying to defend an imperial project. And and actually, if you know me and you know and you read the work, you you, you will recognise I'm not doing that. But um, it it it's in that I'm trying really hard to get Indians in, in um, both Pakistan, India and Bangladesh to recognize what a dramatic series of events their parents and grandparents were involved in and how, and how it created the modern uh, uh, South India. It's really, really important. I mean, I, I, I didn't, the real challenge to me writing this book, okay, it's 200,000 words and um, uh, my friends in Austria, when they listen to this, will laugh their socks off because I actually ended up with about a million words. And I actually had a long conversation about creating, having a two volume book to create a political and a military um, story. But yeah. we didn't. So what I've done is you'll see in the book, 
basically it, we describe it now as a sandwich. There's a f first chapter and a last chapter that describes the argument and presents the facts. <laughs> and then I tell a story, the narrative of the campaign in the middle. So we start with the proposition where I describe what's happened and then I sort of wrap up at the end. So if you really want a sense of my sort of small p political argument, read the first and last chapters. If you want to get a sense of how the army was transformed and how it became so dramatically successful, um, then read the middle bits. And if you want a whole story, read the lot. <laughs> you definitely do, because the detail is incredible. Like the level is amazing, amazing. It's such a great work. Well, I mean, don't over flatter me, uh, Phoebe. I have, been <laughs> doing this for, I have been doing this for a long time. <laughs> what I mean? you, you can tell when you read it. I mean, yeah, this is the kind of book that's an absolute gift to historians and the way you've delved into the sources, just the sheer amount of sources that you've got in there and all the perspectives like we've just said from the Indian Army. It's a real it's a real treat to read. It's just, to put it I love that. <laughs> it's, great. it's interesting, Rob, because you mentioned about the like, obviously, it's got an imperial kind of lens and that you don't want to look like you're defending it. But and I think you have touched upon it, Lucy, like, what do you think of some of the political, social, cultural impacts of this Burma campaign then? If you're, I guess, looking, you've kind of overviewed it perfectly, but what what are these key elements of it all between you two? I think Lucy, maybe, so I don't know. Campaign as a whole. Oh my God. I or think... like, you just want something in particular, yeah. you know? What was like a key element do you, do you as like someone who studies this go, do you know what, I, th I think that was quite significant to come from this campaign. I think, I mean, you know, we you mentioned it before, the idea of the kind of forgotten army and, and, and that kind of thing. It's, it's kind of almost taken over from a lot of the, the facts yes. about um, yes. the, the Burma campaign. And, and, and for me, you know, one of the key things is the 14th Army in itself, the makeup of that army and the diversity of it. And I think we've become probably a lot more aware of these things over the last 10 years or so about, you know, yeah. the, the contribution of commonwealth soldiers and, and other nations but also for for this area you know the native populations and and that integration as well um it's there's so many layers it's like an onion i mean it really is like that's always the way with military history but i think this theater yeah. particularly sometimes the narrative on it is just oversimplified and it's just the burma railway and it's just the forgotten yes. army and that's it and actually there is so much more to it. I'm sure, you know, Rob, I, I actually, when I saw the size of the book, I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but I was like, oh, wow, it's done a good job getting it that small because, you know, in reality, yeah. as you said, you know, it's it's just so much to it in that sense. Yeah. And to be able to kind of distill that down and, and get that out and, and kind of explain those things to people in a more simplistic way, I think that's the key thing about it now and moving away from the idea of, as it's a forgotten army, basically. I, I, Can I quickly I ask, sorry, before yeah. we go on to um, Rob and your point, why do you guys think this narrative of the forgotten army has come about then? Well, I think it was the case. I mean, certainly, you know, I mean, my, my granddad, a lot of individuals when they came back, because obviously, well, not maybe it's not obvious, but my granddad didn't get back until 1947. He was out in the Far East because wow. they went, fought in Burma, went on to liberate Hong Kong, um, you know, and then they were stationed out there as, as, as military police um, to kind of restore order and whatnot. And so coming back in 1947, well, you know, the, the big victory parades are over, aren't they? You know, so they, there was yeah. a kind of sense of, of being a forgotten. And I think, you know what, it's just one of those things, we, we get this a lot in military history, don't we? It's a soundbite and it, it kind yeah. of, it summed up something at the time. It summed up a zeitgeist at the time, but it's kind of then just yeah. been gone on. Um, yeah. Yeah. And of course, the Burma Railway was such a horrific, you know, really, truly, and the, the cruelty of the Japanese and all those kind of things, which 
bring about you know your deepest kind of sensibilities of like that cultural clash that ideological clash that kind of just kind of taken over as the main the main thing really when actually there are all of these other things and you know particularly as Rob said the transformation of the Indian army that's something that I think you know I'm really excited to read all about that in Rob's book because I had no I had never really considered that or, or thought of a parallel between that and the BEF in the first world war that's, that's news to me you know I think that that's I, I agree with everything there Lucy I think the real thing for me is that I always ask when people ask me about the forgotten army I say well say for, I say forgotten to whom and for whom because the truth is that um for Indians it it was a really unusual campaign they weren't as far away as the, as the Brits who were fighting so the for, forgotten army came out of British soldiers who were complaining that whenever they got the newspapers um you know, six weeks after they were published because they had to go around the cave and all the rest of it. And uh, they never mentioned anything about Burma. So that this, this sort of myth began. They were a long way from home. Uh, Germany first was the policy that had been agreed by Churchill and Roosevelt in 1941, even before America joined the war. And, um, and the reality is the fighting in Burma, the, the Far East, as it was called, uh, always came second. And I think we just have to live with it. But the thing that's happened over the years is that you know the the narrative about the the forgotten army and i i'm not I, i'm not disparaging anyone's experience here has been predominantly british and the fact of the matter is that 87 percent of the 14th army was indian and that whole story has been forgotten and you know what we need to do in, in resurrecting this particular campaign is remembering everyone who fought in it not just the the Definitely. um um not just the Africans, of course, not just the Indians, but the Africans as well. And indeed, within Southeast Asia Command, one of the interesting things that I tell Americans is that there are about 90,000 Brits, sorry, about 100,000 Brits, and nearly 300,000 Americans. Now, most wow. of them are involved yeah. in the hump airlift, uh, but also all the logistical effort of building up a line of communication effective, effectively through um, from Calcutta up the Brahmaputra and into. Um, the upper reaches of the Brahmaputra Valley, Toledo and and um, um, and Chaduba and places like that, which is just one of the most amazing exploits in, in world history. I mean, the hump airlift was quite extraordinary. If I just give you one one little example of uh, yeah, please do. The, the, the data from the hump airlift. Well, if you take all the flights that were flown over those two and a half years from the upper Brahmaputra Valley into Yunnan and you average them out, it comes to the equivalent of 247 C-47, so DC-3 Dakota, flights a day. Oh my God. I mean, it was unbelievable. And of course, it was only outdone by the uh, Berlin airlift a couple of years later. Interestingly enough, the people who uh, planned and managed the Berlin airlift had all uh, cut their teeth in uh, on the hump. Uh, wow. So it was really quite an amazing logistical exercise. I mean, I think that's the point about the Forgotten Army. Um, it's yes, it was forgotten at the time, but um, and it was difficult getting um, uh, film crews out and and journalists and so on, and so it didn't have the amount of um, publicity that the boys wanted. That that in large part was sorted by Mount Batten, who was um, mm. commander Southeast Asia from November 1940. Three onwards, he brought out Frank Owen, who had been a an editor from I think it was the Evening Standard, who revolutionised communications within Forty Nine. I mean, made it made a huge difference. Um, but yeah, there was a sense of amongst the soldiery that they weren't being looked after on a communications front. Yeah, 
I just want to make one point, if I can, uh, Olivia, please. to your earlier question yes, about. Yes, please. Um, well, uh, you, you asked the question about um, political, social, cultural impact. I, I would go back to Burma yeah. and I would um, make the comment that actually uh, by 1944, virtually everyone who was fighting for Burma, uh, for allied uh, ambitions in the region, which meant in uh, fighting in Burma, uh, were not fighting to reimpose colonialism, they were fighting to free Burma from the Japanese, and they were fully cognizant of the reality that, like India, um, Burma would have to go its own way in due course. Um, when that would be was, was up to the politicians after the war. There were a few people from the Burma government who had um, exited the country, and so the, this is the colonial government, who were living in Shimla through the war from 1942 after they escaped. Uh, a number of those people thought that they were going back to reimpose uh, British colonial rule, but the vast majority of people didn't. And the real challenge that we saw in 1944-45 in Burma was the, the fracturing of Burma. Uh, Britain had only had colonial authority in Burma since 1885, so about 40, about 50 years before the war, so not long, you know, it hadn't been there very, very long. Um, but one thing it had tried to do, um, in part by just leaving people to get on with their lives, particularly in the hill tribes, was not interfere. And there was there was a sense of um, stability in the country. I'm not saying this was a virtue of colonialism at all. But the Second World War, the Japanese came in with um, a number of young Burmese activists, and I've given a number of lectures on the subject, and they formed the Burma National Army, but they were in the main Baymars, they were Buddhist Baymars, and mm. they were um, keen on creating a unified Burma under Baymar control. And this is a real, real problem. Aung uh, Sang, really great man, actually, um, assassinated in 1947, was one of the, the, the rare breed of politicians who recognized that the future of Burma needed to be united. And the hill tribes, all those that I mentioned earlier, from the Karens to the Kachins and, and round Nagas and so on, needed to be united in a single polity. And it didn't happen. And I'm afraid mm. partly it was uh, in internecine warfare within the Baymars themselves, partly the disintegration of the country caused by the Japanese. And then, you know, Britain had this, uh, you know, Britain had the role or the responsibility of handing over this fractured inheritance to a new Burma. And it's never, ever recovered. Mm. Wow. Uh, it's that's an impact for half, isn't it's it? It's really great. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but that's, you know, so uh, wh whereas India recovered and India went on to great things. Uh, Burma hasn't, and it's um, what we're seeing in Burma today is, is a d direct legacy of Japan's invasion in 1942. And it's such, a, such, such an important thing to remember that we are still seeing these impacts from yeah. the Second World War now in the current political situation, which is something that well, is... I mean, I, 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 a number of people foolishly have asked me in the past, why do, you, why do you study the Second World War? It's ancient history. I said, well, just look around the world. The entire <laughs> structure of our, of our modern global um, yeah. political environment is a direct consequence of the Second World War. Yeah, absolutely. Direct. Absolutely, agree with you there. So before we move on to our kind of classic fun round, we <laughs> have to talk about the Arakan, which I was asking Lucy beforehand, how do you say it? Is it Arakan? Is it Arakan? We'll get, we'll get a Arakan? general consensus for in a minute. <laughs> it's Arakan. Arakan. So we just wanted to talk about that for a minute. What went wrong? And then what went right, I guess, is how you can simplify it. Uh, so this is, Lucy, where you're kind of really connected to, isn't it? This is where that you have a particular interest with your granddad. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah. That's, 
that's the area that um that my granddad fought in but not until 1945 and I think I think okay. that's the key thing is and Rob touched on this earlier is the changes um that, that went on uh, in the Arakan region in the, the the different kind of campaigns that went on over there um you know the first and so there were three major ones the first and second um you know in a nutshell were pretty terrible for the allies and the third one yeah. is the one where you know the Japanese the Japanese on the back foot they'd learnt their lessons and they really put all of that into action that's like in a nutshell I yeah would say. yeah it really was like third time lucky wasn't it I, <laughs> what I was six times a charm what was significant about this place in particular? Was it a strategic stronghold? Yeah. Was it what yeah. was it offering that you know? For those who don't know, really, why well, was this? Ar so Arakan is essentially the Burmese littoral, so it's the, right. the long coastline that laps the Bay of Bengal. And the real strategic purpose of um, Arakan was to provide it as a uh, as a launch site for a further assault either amphibious or otherwise to Rangoon, because the Allies had two choices. If they wanted to recover Burma uh, in order to be able to re reinstitute the Burma Road, remember at this time, this is a really important point actually, there was no concept that the war would be uh, ending imminently. So there was a the whole idea that we would still be fighting until mid-1947 if an invasion of Japan was successfully launched in early 1946. So, so what we needed to do was to, to recover uh, Malaya and Singapore in order to achieve that. In order to do that, you needed Rangoon. And the way of getting, there are two ways to get to Rangoon. One was via uh, land, which is the way it was eventually done. And the other was via Arakan, uh, the, the main um, island being um, Akyab uh, and um, now known as Sitwe. Um, Churchill, of course, didn't want to get involved in a land battle in, in, um, in Burma. He, he, he um, uh, described it as akin to jumping into the, the sea to wrestle with a shark. He just thought it was just too jolly difficult. <laughs> so Britain had, yeah. throughout the war, focused on a, an amphibious solution to the problem with Burma. The problem is that the global constraint on uh, amphibious resources was such that it, they were never available to be used in Burma until 90, end of 1944, early 1945, when there's no need for them in Europe. And indeed, um, the final battles were... Being un, you know, being prepared uh, by the Americans for uh, Okinawa and Iwo Jima. So resources became available uh, in 1945, by which stage actually Slim was demonstrating that he could advance overland reasonably well. And the Arakan fight was an important um, corollary to what Slim was doing in the rest of Burma. It's so, it's just a lot to take in. It's just so interesting. I would say one of the, I think the only thing to kind of, well, to kind of add is that Please. for me, this is one of the a particularly important thing to do here is to look at a map, to, yes. which we're obviously over yeah. a podcast. But I would encourage yeah. <laughs> anybody to, you know, to go on to, to Google Earth and, and, and to look at, actually look at Burma and, and yeah. you know, look at what, you know, what Rob's just been talking about, because when you actually can see it, you'll, you'll realise how... A, how difficult, you know, just even just looking at it logistically, how difficult it was, um, but also to kind of then visualise Arakan area and why it was so important becomes becomes quite obvious to me. Mm, mm. Yeah, definitely, mm. definitely. Yeah, I'm doing Lucy, that now. I wanted to ask Lucy, um, with, your, with your granddad's, um, have you kind of documented, put together a lot of this stuff? Did he, was he good at kind of writing things down and collecting it? I'm just thinking my granddad's own family history. It's a bit yeah, yeah. I've managed to put some of it together, but how have you... 
how have you got but along yeah, with that? Interestingly, well, it's, I suppose like a lot of that, to a, a fair amount of veterans, he didn't speak about anything really until yeah. really he was uh, in his 80s, to be honest with you. Yeah. Um, it was only really when the, the 60th anniversary, when they did the, the trip back, that he really, actually the only yeah. time I've ever really heard him spoke, speak about it was in the documentary they made. He never, wow. never really talked to... Uh, his family about it because he just wanted to get on with his life when he got back he wasn't yeah. you know, a single father yes. of three he didn't want to you know he had a lot on his plate and frankly it was the last thing he wanted to think about he wanted to build a career um yeah so he, he kept quite a few things um but actually it was when he got older that he started gathering bits and bobs from you know yeah. very active in the commando association as he got into his later years uh, mm -hmm. and used to have meetups at the Union Jack Club I, I went to one of them when I was about I don't know I must have been about 13 which I obviously didn't <laughs> appreciate how great that was at the time yeah um and and so you know I've got I've got a fair amount of, of stuff and I've, I'm kind of working at the minute to to yeah. draw as much together from um from three commando brigade which is, is what I'm really focused on to hopefully um, yeah. get a book underway about that because um maybe yeah to try to combine the personal testimonies but, but with also kind of you know the wider context of, of why a why um hill 170 was so important and kind of describe mm. what went on there yeah. but the wider um impact of of burma and, and talking a bit bit like rob has mentioned about you know the the international effort there um yeah and kind of to, to place that within that context so mm. um, well yeah. as rob said yeah, I think it'd be a so interesting. The, yeah, and you've got the knowledge, and you've got the family in jest as well. So the only problem, and is you've like, got Rob. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the problem is for me is that you know particularly um, it's it's not like it's not many resources as there are in the war in Europe when you're researching. You know, this is something because it's my first real you know looking into this. Um, you you haven't got the photographs. You haven't got you know because yeah. journalists weren't yeah. out there, and in you know, and it's not across the pond. It's not literally yeah, like you go nip to France or no, Germany if you, yeah. if you had to, to do exactly. research or something. It's so far afield, and but that's what's so important to do. But also because of the political situation at the time as well in those nations, there isn't the documentation that you would have, you know, in France no, or in Germany. True. Yeah, that's true. And it's not sure. so well organised. And uh, I had a lovely experience recently of writing to the French archives in Paris, uh, asking a question. And because of COVID, I couldn't get there. And they replied beautifully. And actually, in addition to that, they copied the material that I wanted only a couple of pages oh. and sent it to me. Well, if you go to the archives in Dallas, it's a very different story. It's very, very hard to find your way around. You I need to come in. And, uh, <laughs> and of course, there are no archives, uh, accessible archives in Burma. But just going back to Lucy's point, you know, when the, when the boys came home and girls came home in 1946, 47, they were actually deliberately told not to talk about their experiences. And they were, they were, I've been told this from many veterans I've interviewed. And the reason for this was to, um, the intentions were good. The intention was to tell the, the men of the 14th Army that whilst they had really important um, combat experience and military experience, so too did everyone else back at home, their wives, and their families, they'd all suffered you know, the blitz, they'd all been involved in the war, they'd all suffered deprivation. And the men of the 14th Army's experience was no better or worse than theirs. And they were just told to forget it all, subliminate it and get on with their lives. And most did, only beginning to talk about it when they retired and then sat down and, yeah. and a lot of it just gushed out of being locked up for 40 years. Oh and I God. saw that, I, I once interviewed um, a veteran and his daughter 
who's now a lovely friend of ours, uh, she was sitting there and, and the veteran was saying, you know, <laughs> coming up with some amazing stuff. And the, and the daughter said, Dad, you've never, ever mentioned this. He said, well, you know, I, I had a life to, life to lead and I wanted to protect you guys from it. Um, now mm. that I've got the time and leisure to mm. think about it, it's just coming back. And it's very interesting, actually. I suspect like Lucy's um, grandfather, Ted, it really did take over their retirement years. And that's the case mm. with many that's veterans. Crazy. They have got, you know, they hadn't had anything to do with the army for 40, 50 years. They've gone back into associations. They've formed groups and clubs and societies. They've gone back on tours because it was the defining experience of their lives. And they, you know, when you've got the leisure to think about things and to talk about them in an objective way, you've got many years behind you, you know, you, you, you're not completely involved in the, the subjectivity and the emotion of it. You can deal yeah. with it. Yeah, of course. Of course you can. Wow. I think it's, yeah. it's, it's just been so fascinating. Like, I think... I think we could definitely do another podcast on this completely. Like, there's so, oh like God. you said, there's so many layers. We'll have to do it when, Lucy, when Lucy's book comes out. We'll then surprise yes. Lucy with Rob yeah. and we'll do it like that. Definitely. I'll <laughs> read your book, that? Lucy. <laughs> yeah. We've got to write it first. <laughs> <laughs> We're manifesting it, Lucy. We're manifesting it. Shall we move on to the, to the fun round? Lucy, are you going to yes, take the fun round? I'm going to nip off because I'm at home and. I need Fine. to get myself some tea. Don't worry, oh, my dear. Well, it's lovely brought... to see you. Thank you for you joining too. us. Thank you for Bye. inviting Bye. me. Yes. Lovely to see you, Lucy. Bye, Lucy. Well, these Dolly fun round. You know, these are crazy. Yeah. <laughs> 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 we love it. We're called Kaki Malarkey, so we've got to finish on a bit of malarkey. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, right, let's go straight in then. Who's your favourite figure in all of history? Well, I'm I'm going to be really boring, um, and I'm going to say oh, my and I'm going to I'm going to be boring. I'm going to say it's Jesus, and the reason I say that is I read last year Tom Holland's book Dominion, which oh, is right. just the most amazing des description of how the teachings of the early Christian Church of Jesus are, are just so incredibly interwoven in every fabric of Western society. It's unbelievable. You can't oh, unpick brilliant. anything from yeah. Western society that doesn't lead all the way back, including atheism mm. itself. So oh. I was really profoundly moved by the book. And um, mm. so Jesus- I've got that, and, I've got Dominion, and I've not read it yet, but I need to. It's one of those books that's so big, it's quite daunting. It's not, it my, is, but you know, normal, the, the, it's not my normal way, field of history, so yeah. Yeah, the way to, the way to deal yeah. with a, uh, a big book is not to think of it as a book at all. No. And I give this advice all the time, just see it as chapter by chapter. So if there are lots of short chapters, yeah. Just do it chapter by chapter. Don't even think about it. And you'll find you, you'll eat your way through Dominion really quickly. But yeah. it's um, the, the, he's, a, he's a brilliant writer, uh, Tom Holland. And what he's done is he's actually created a narrative of 2000 years of history with this golden thread throughout, you know, the transformative yeah. power of an idea. And the transformative power of that idea is love. It's about, it's about seeing humankind in a from a different perspective, which is what Christianity does. Yeah. So that's, that's my... Um, <laughs> Favorite, you're, favorite not gonna, you're not going to believe this, Rob. We've, we've never had the answer on until we interviewed Fernando Cervantes the other day. And we thought, Jesus, yeah, he said Jesus Christ for his favorite person. And we thought, twice oh, this week. Oh, you're twice this there. week. We've done it twice. Can't believe so it. Funny. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> yeah, I've never had it. And twice this week. I yeah. bet you Jesus comes tomorrow as well, yeah. 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 
I can see it happening. Right, so who's your least favourite person? Because if this repeats itself, then I know you've done over talking. Oh, well, I, so. I don't think you would have had this on. My, the least, I wrote a book a couple of years ago on the rise of, uh, of fascism in Europe from an American perspective. I was writing for an American audience and I, I spent my time in his uh, in his diaries I, and I, I really got angry with this man. I, it's it's, Ooh, it's oh, really cool. difficult for a historian to get angry with someone. It's Joseph Kennedy. He was the United oh, States cool. ambassador to, to Britain. Uh, at the start of the war, pre-war, at the start of the war, uh, he was replaced JFK's by... JFK's dad. Sorry? JFK's yes. dad, yes. Yes, yeah. Dad. Mm. Uh, he was a nauseating man. He hated Britain. He, um, he was uh, defined by his appalling prejudices, um, and Roosevelt eventually sacked him and uh, replaced him with um, a really quite remarkable man. But Joseph Kennedy, I'm afraid, definitely my least favourite yeah. person in oh, the whole okay. of history. Why did he, got, he was on the wrong side of history more than once. Ah, so and that was I think I've read about this before, but that that's I'm assuming that's why Roosevelt sacked him then. Yes, yes. Yeah. Oh, interesting. I mean, he, he was a great pessimist, a very, very strong supporter of Hitler. He he predicted the downfall of Britain within weeks and um just wrote Britain off, uh, wrote democracy off, wrote the idea of fighting for the right off, you know, just a nasty person. Yeah, yeah so he can stay harsh. there. We don't like you. He can stay there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Next question then. If you could take three people from history on a road trip, who would you have in your car? Okay. Okay. I'm gonna. I'm just gonna be really Sorry, um let's... boring here again because I've written this book <laughs> on Burma. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go to Bill Slim. Bill Slim's one of my all-time yeah. heroes. He's relatively unknown, still unknown. Uh, when people think about, certainly in Britain, they think about the Second World War and our generals, they think about Monty, and, and you know, Monty was great in his own way, of course, yeah. and I, I'm, I'm a great supporter of Monty, but actually Slim had remarkable character. I would love to be able to have conversations with Slim. I've spent some time this week in his archives in Churchill College, Cambridge, because I'm, wow. I'm underway. Uh, un, uh, one of my projects is to reprint some of the articles he wrote between 1931 and 1940. He was quite a prolific um, short story writer as, a, as an army officer, writing under a pseudonym called uh, Anthony Mills, which is slim backwards. And he published about 36 <laughs> articles between 1931 and 40, and I'm working with Sharp Books to, to republish them. And the second man I would have in the car is Claude Auchinleck, another man who very few people oh, know yeah. anything about. But he was a remarkable titan uh, in uh, for Britain and the Empire in the Second World War, and he was the man largely responsible for galvanizing, no, I'll, I'll say for creating the new Indian Army, 1943, 1944. Mm. He was the man responsible for designing it and implementing it. So Slim was able to use the army that Auchinleck created to fight the Japanese. It was Auchinleck who was the man behind it, and I mm. have recently been awarded a research fellowship at Pembroke College, Oxford, and I'm going to be writing a book for them oh. in due course on Auchinleck when I can find I was going to say he's one of those figures who I read about all the time his name always pops up but I don't know anything about him yeah. so there are a couple of um books on Auchinleck some well, one not very good the the older ones are much better and I'm going yeah. back into the archives to have a really good look I'm not sure how I'm going to treat oh. it first I mean I've got an idea that I should treat him as a strategist. He was very important in the strategy in the Far East, uh, um, and, and uh, not the Far East, the, the Middle East in um, 1941, Iraq, Iran, and Syria. But it was his role as Commander-in-Chief in India in, in raising the new Indian Army that I think is really, really quite strategic. So, I mean, mm. I, I don't know what title it'll be, maybe Father of the Indian Army, something like that. 
Uh, and the other, the other, the third person that I've got to, I've got to tip my hat off to the Air Force, both the Royal Air Force and the um, the United States Army Air Force in the Far East, and I'll uh, uh, chuck in the name of John Baldwin, who was the uh, Air Marshal responsible for the uh, for the Third Air Force. Um, I've just forgotten the correct title of it, and people will shoot me down for it, but never mind. <laughs> the, the right, three you can come back to it. We'll edit it in. Yes, the three of them. <laughs> the three of them actually, Orkinlex, Slim, and Baldwin, were the architects of victory in Manipur and and. Um, Sam in 1944 and uh, Burma in 1945. It was, it was as Slim said, it was an air war. So getting those three guys together, it's a bit of a response, but you know, what's what amazing conversations we would have. And actually, I don't, I can't, there weren't many conversations after the war between Bill Slim and Claude Auchinleck, both Indian Army officers, which I think is quite a tragedy. They were, Hmm. went off to do their own things. And um, I, I think the opportunity of getting them back together in a big limousine, on a long road trip, talking about the war would just be my idea. Oh, incredible. Perfect. Definitely. Right, well, last question then of our quickfire round. If you could go back in time for one day to one place, where would you go? I, I would go back to lots of places. You know, you've asked me one place. I'd love to go to the Charge of the well, Light Brigade. I'd love to go to the beheading yeah. of Charles I. Yeah. But actually, keeping the theme going, uh, I would, uh, the Burma campaign, I think I'd go to the um, Victory Parade in Singapore, overseen by Lord Mountbatten in September 1945, when he ordered, uh, against the instructions of General Douglas MacArthur, that all Japanese uh, officers surrender their swords to equivalent ranks in the Allied forces, and the Japanese army handed them over. And I chose that date. I choose that date because it's of its incredible symbolism, because what it represents is the, the death of militarism. And if my book is anything else, it's about the death of militarism. It's, it's about how the Japanese yeah. militaristic bubble was burst. And I, I have given lectures on the subject occasionally, and it's very interesting. I mean, I am quite convinced uh, that actually one of the reasons why the Japanese so quickly got rid of uh, you know, culturally and socially and politically got rid of uh, the, the, the baggage from pre-1945 was because they all realised that there was no moral virtue in militarism. The whole, mm-hmm. the whole construct of political and social life in Japan through, through the years, really from uh, the, well, the early 1900s, was that uh, militarism was a, was, was a moral virtue. It was virtuous mm-hmm. to die for one's um, country. Um, and to do so sacrificially and all the rest of it. It was it was more virtuous than anything else. It's just complete nonsense because what it does is it just, you know, sends everyone off on this great suicide mission. And um, and, and that's, that, that's fundamentally the story of Japan in the 1930s and 40s. And it's one of history's greatest tragedies. So being able to see these Japanese officers hand over their swords, they weren't allowed to keep them. Um, yeah is symbolically incredibly important for me. It was incredibly important. And I think it was a dramatically successful um, moment in time. And you could see that, see the way in which the Japanese quite calmly gave in and there was no rise of militarism. Just just wasn't a sniff of it um, after the war. And that's really, really important. I mean, I, I could go on because it's really important that we that certainly for Hirohito and Tojo and the decision makers in Tokyo, that they recognised that there was no virtue in carrying on. Oh, wow, that's incredible. Can I just quickly ask, what what happened with those Japanese soldiers? Were they simply just allowed to go home to Japan? 
Uh, they, they were filtered through a process of um, interrogation and war criminals were mm -hmm. identified. Not, not right. enough, in my view, but they, they, yeah. were, um, they were identified and then they were put through a proper trial. Uh, evidence was presented, quite a significant number of, uh, interestingly enough, they were defended by allied lawyers. So the large number oh. of British and Australian and American lawyers in a fabulous um, um, display of magnanimity, actually, and um, mm. democratic power, uh, demanded evidence before um, uh, any of these uh, Japanese individuals were found guilty. Um, so it's, it's quite an extraordinary story, actually. And it was an, an important moral story for the Japanese to see their, their victors behaving in this way. And even General Yamashita, who was a great uh, general who seized Singapore in February 1942, he mm. was tried in the Philippines for actions undertaken by his soldiers. Uh, I think the evidence the jury is out as to whether he was directly involved. He certainly wasn't mm. in, in Singapore, but possibly in, in Philippines, and he was executed. But uh, only and his his defenders were Americans appointed by the American government in order to defend General Yamashita. And a number of them wrote books after the war saying they thought you know he was he was innocent. But a uh, very interesting process. Uh, everyone else, frankly, was shipped back home. The war was over. There, there, yeah. was, there was nothing. Uh, it took quite a while because the priority was to recover uh, Allied POWs and and so on and send them back back home. So the Japanese also, interestingly enough, quite a large number of Japanese troops were dragooned into supporting, uh, working with the British uh, in uh, Sumatra and Java and Dutch, the Dutch oh. before the Dutch arrived, yes, to wow. keep order. And also uh, they worked under uh, British command with General Douglas um, Gracie in French Indochina before the French returned. So there was this oh. very, very strange period of time for six to eight months in both those parts of the world where Japanese um, units served under British command. Wow. Wow. Oh my God. So I feel like we've done in a one podcast somehow a, a complete flying visit. For yeah. And it's just utterly fascinating. Right? And I feel like what a, what a kind of, like we said, we need to do another one. We need to keep coming back yeah. and doing more if possible because there's so much on layer. But I feel like this is a perfect moment to go pause, you know, looking at what happened to these guys <laughs> and celebrating your incredible book. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you for coming. Yeah, on. no, thank you for coming Find to talk to us. Everyone who's listening and is interested in Second World War history, go buy the book, look at Rob's other work, and you know, check <laughs> Rob out on social media and everything. <laughs> thank you very much, Olivia and Phoebe. It's been a real pleasure. And it's pleasure. nice to see you uh, online as well as in the flesh. And I look forward to seeing you at um I'm going to various festivals. I'm going to Chalk Valley and yes, uh, lovely. So, so I'll yes, see you later in the year. But it's, Hopefully, uh, yes, we will be there as well. It's fabulous without COVID restrictions anymore. It's oh, marvelous. Oh, I know. I can't, wait. Such I can't wait for this summer. I feel like I'm really pinning my hopes on this summer as being just my first taste of normality in so long, where you can actually just have fun and fingers crossed, British weather will pull through We're for us. Cram two years <laughs> into one. There's no doubt about it this year. It's going to be fabulous. Oh, yeah, I love I mean, that. So much positivity. Yeah, for sure. What we want. Exactly. It's been yeah, my pleasure. It really you. has. That was the brilliant Robert Lyman talking to us about his new book, The War of Empires. He was also joined by Lucy Betteridge Dyson, who spoke to us about her granddad's experience in the Arakan. We'll be back with another episode next week. But until then, this has been Phoebe Style. And Olivia Smith. And this is Kathy Malaki, signing off.